And he, he, he wrote this in the middle of his life where he lost some perspective. David had become king. He's king of Israel, big kingdom, very busy. He's fighting wars. He's governing the kingdom. He's living life. He's got a routine. I don't know what uh, Sarah talked about kings, but I mean, they had lots of things to do back in that day. King David was a very busy man. In fact, David, when he writes this a song, is very busy. And he gets, at some point, though, he's busy, routine of life, mornings are always coming, uh, making decisions, governing, fighting wars, and then all of a sudden, David's struck with a very serious illness. Most commentators think that the, this illness, whatever it was, almost killed David. And so he kind of face to face with his own mortality. In the height of his reign, in his kingdom, David comes face to face with his own mortality. In verse 7, uh, David writes, remove your stroke from me. Some translations say, remove your plague from me. That's, that's, this illness showed David what he was really made of, that he was finite. Mighty King David struck with his own mortality. <laughs> Like sand through the hourglass, David was facing the questions that many of us face. How he had aged, how near death he was. And this disturbed him. And that's what he wrote about in Psalm 39. We respond differently, don't we, to the, the thought that we're mortal, that we're deaf and that we're finite, that we're going to die. Some of us just dismiss it, put it out of our mind, live in denial, try not to think about it, hope tomorrow comes. Many of us decide that, with, well, yeah, life's short, so with what time we have left, I'm going to live it up, fill life with experiences and pleasures and joys, knowing that my end is near. Make a bucket list. But David didn't do that. David faced this reality that he was on his deathbed, many believe, and he prayed in verse 4, make me, know my, make me to know my end, and the Lord did. That's the purpose of this song. That we might know our end, realize the brevity of life, and live wisely with the time we have left. To illustrate this, Davis takes us through his struggle. Beginning with his discour discouragement over the shortness of life and the apparent vanity of life, David was troubled by all this. David was truly troubled by all this. It troubled him greatly, and he wanted to talk about it. He wanted to talk about what was bothering him. He felt... All of a sudden, like, life could end at any moment, and it really bothered him. But he didn't do that, notice, in verse 1, because he didn't want to be misunderstood. So the psalm begins with David, very troubled, but resolved to remain silent. Verse 1, I said, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. There's great wisdom in this verse. And learning to guard our mouth, to know when to speak, to know when to hold our tongue. Now, I'm a lawyer by education and training, so I get paid to be very talkative. Sometimes I get paid by the word. I like to talk. People can't get me to stop talking. So there's great wisdom in learning to speak quiet, to stop, to hold our tongue. Charles Spurgeon commented on this verse and said, Tongue sins are great sins. Like sparks of fire, ill words spread and do great damage. I think there's wisdom in that. It's always foolish to complain about friends in the presence of unfriendly people. Enemies, as David puts it, right? But how more so is it to complain about God in the presence of unbelievers? Would we ever want to say something that turns somebody away from Jesus Christ?
even when we're struggling. David was struggling here. That he was around wicked people, as he calls them in verse 1. And he didn't want to dishonor God by the things that he had to say. It's okay to struggle with faith. It's okay to struggle with your mortality. King David did that. But there's a time and a place to share those struggles. There were people that would interpret David's questions and concern and his worry as disbelief and dishonoring God. We'll see in this song that David was not dishonoring God. He didn't disbelieve God. He was wrestling with some questions. So he resolved to keep quiet. However, that only made David feel worse. His sorrow increased. Let's read verse 2 and 3. I was mute and I, in silent. I held my peace to no avail. And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused. The fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. So David couldn't take it anymore. All this stuff is on his mind. He's, he, he's feeling like life is slipping away. He wants to talk about it. So he, he, can't, he can't hold it in any longer, so he speaks. But notice, when he speaks, he speaks to God. He expresses his concern to the Lord and he seeks wisdom from God. There's, this in and of itself is an act of great wisdom. Going to the Lord. Of course, it's not wrong to seek wisdom from wise men and women. We should all surround ourselves with godly men, godly women who can speak into our lives, who give us wise counsel. The book of Proverbs talks about that. Absolutely, we should do that. But we can't forsake going to God with our questions and our concerns and seeking wisdom directly from the Lord. We're commanded to do that. That's a very wise thing to do, and that's what David does here. We're to go to God in prayer. James tells us to do that in James uh, chapter 1, verse 5. He says, if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given to him. Paul, the Apostle Paul, told the Philippians in the book of Philippians not to be anxious about anything, but to pray to make their request known to God. And that's what David does here. Wrestling with this, David goes to God, and that's what we should do. Unable to resolve the problem himself, the problem of life, its brevity, and the seeming vanity of it all that was weighing, really weighing on David. David turned to God. He prayed, Lord, make me to know my end. Verse 4, let's read it. Oh, Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. This is not a prayer to let, for David asking God, let me see my hourglass. Tell me how many days I have left. That's what it seems like, but that's not what David's praying here. David's not asking the question, tell me the exact minutes, tell me when I'm going to die. That's not what David's doing. David here is asking for wisdom. Lord, make me to know my end is a prayer for the Lord to give David wisdom and grace to consider how brief his life is and to respond and live accordingly with the time he has left. This is a very wise prayer. Life is short. And we need to know that. And we need to understand that. And we need to live accordingly. And David prays this so he will really know his end. And he hopes this will protect him from wasting his life. Then in verse 5, David turns to describe just how brief life really is. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreaths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. A handbreadth was the smallest unit of measure in ancient Israel. Of course, it, it kind of depends on the hand, but typically it was the width of four fingers. So what David is really saying here, so typically the, the, the man's hand is about three inches. 
What David is really saying here is, God, you've made my life three inches long. Literally, you've made my life short. It's brief. It's nothing. Surely, David writes, all mankind stands as a mere breath. The New American Standard Bible translates this verse and says, surely at his best, man is mere breath. At his best. At the peak physical condition, mental condition, age, man at his very best, and women, is a breath. That's what David saying. Life is brief and short. We make an appearance in this world and we're gone. And this is man at his best. Literally translated here, it says, man standing firm. Man in all his glory and strength and his confidence is a breath. The Bible says a vapor. This is what James says where he's counseling businessmen against the presumption of making overconfident plans about the future. James writes in James chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Of course, it's very wise to make plans. James is not telling people not to make plans. Neither with David, neither with Solomon, Solomon talks about in the book of Proverbs, Solomon, King David's son, talks about in the book of Proverbs, the wisdom of planning for the future. We should do that. But we don't know what the future holds. We might not be here tomorrow. We might not be here by the end of the day. And if we're wise, truly wise, the Bible says, we will live in the knowledge of that reality. That we're just a vapor, a breath. The Bible says, a puff of smoke. Verse 5, again, surely every man at his best is a mere breath. We see this all the time, don't we? Young people, the height of their lives ahead of them, gone in an instant. Probably every one of you has a story about somebody that was killed too young. It's just a sad reality of life. At its best, life is short. Maybe we live to 80, 90 but we all come to our end. But it wasn't just the shortness of life that was troubling David. Look in verse 6. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. A man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. David was troubled by the futility of what life seemed to be like to him. Because of the brevity of our life, accomplishments, our achievements, they eventually all come to nothing. All that we build in this world eventually decays and disappears. And David says it in verse 6, Surely a man goes about as a shadow, for nothing they're in turmoil. Some translations say they make an uproar. I was reminded about my profession. It's the set, one of the set, many sad things about my profession is fights over inheritance and estates. And how often do we see a man's treasures fought over for, with lawyers, by the kids, by the relatives, and in the end, the lawyers and the courts get all the money. And there's nothing left. The Hebrew word that David used here is a word called heba. It's the same word translated as breath and vapor in verse 5. And we're familiar with this, this word if you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, another kind of bummer of a book. If we're being honest, 
um, written by Solomon, interesting, David's son, who was spent a whole book struggling with the very thing his dad is struggling with in this text. In chapter 1, verse 2, Solomon writes, Vanities of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. That's the meaning of it here. That's what David is saying here. In fact, verse 6 is the, really summarizes the whole book of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 2, Solomon, in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon wonders about the outcome of all of his labor, and he writes in verses 18 and 19, I hated all my toil which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Solomon recognized that when all was said and done, he had no control over the fruits of his labor. This is vanity, he says in verse 19. Hevel, the same word that David uses in verse 5. So is Solomon and David in, in this psalm saying not to work hard, that hard work is vanity? Surely not. <laughs> I'll be honest. If I'm being honest with you, when I read Ecclesiastes and I read this psalm, sometimes I think that. If it's all vanity, what's the point? Why am I waking up in the morning? Why am I, I mean, this is a real struggle I've had over the last couple of years. But that's not the point of these psalms. It's not the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. Hard work, work is good. We're told to work hard, to support ourselves, to provide for our families and our kids and our grandkids. I mean, you see it all over the Bible. Work is good. The Apostle Paul worked all throughout his ministry to provide for himself. We're to save money. We're to use our resources to help people. We're to serve the Lord. The Bible does not deny that. Solomon's not denying that in Ecclesiastes, and David's not, David is not denying that in Psalm 39. It's absolutely not vanity to work and work hard. But when a person works to build their own personal kingdom, to make a name for himself or herself, to be remembered by men and men only, to be accepted by men and men only, this is vanity. Because that comes to nothing. We're a mere breath, David says. We live in a world of shadows, nothing less. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 that everything we see is going to be dissolved, literally destroyed, the Bible says. Everything we see, nothing we build lasts. We're walking in a mirage. It appears real and substantial, but it's not. It lies to you. It claims to be fulfilling, but it deceives and leaves men and women wanting more. We work hard to make a, earn a living, to make a name for ourselves, and in an instant, it's all gone. David writes, a man heaps wealth and does not know who will gather. It's this way in every generation. Men labor hard to earn money, fret about how to keep it, scheme about how to control it, and in the end, they can't. Surely, David writes, they make an uproar about nothing. So what's to be learned from all this? Life is grief, pain. This is a reality. Is this the lesson of this psalm? Is that all we can gain from this text? Is that what David is asking him, God to teach him in verse 4? No. That's not. There's more here. There's more to this. Praise God there's hope in this verse. Because David makes a turning point. David's prayer is to help him understand the meaning of life. Help him to make sense, give me wisdom to see the brevity and the vanity of it all. So I can walk and respond accordingly and respond as David does. There's great 
hope in this verse, the in this psalm, the transition comes in verse 7. The insight he has into the nature and brevity of life and the disappointment life has brought him leads to verse 7. And now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. The New International Version of the Bible asks, what do I look for? If it's all vanity, if it's all meaningless, if it's all brief, what should I anticipate? What am I hoping for? What's really important? If it ultimately all vanishes, then the only thing that's worth doing is doing what does last. Placing our hope in the only thing that's eternal, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Living for him is the only thing that lasts, and that's the conclusion that David comes to. Through life's disappointments, David renews his commitment to the Lord and answers his own question, God, my hope is in you. It's the only hope David has on his deathbed. King David, faced with his own mortality, says, my hope is in you alone. This is where David finds his joy. This is where David finds his meaning. It's in, the, it's in the Lord and his relationship with that, with the Lord. In fact, this is how Jesus defines eternal life later in John chapter 17. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, who you have sent. Knowing God, that's eternal life. Having your relationship with him, walking with him daily. This is the abundant life that's promised to us. That is fulfillment. That's the fulfillment David was seeking, that David was wrestling with. And David renews his commitment to God in verse 7. There is no fulfillment in life if we do not rest in Jesus Christ. Well, this is the turning point of the psalm. And so David turns in chapter or verse 8 to confess sin. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. What? The transgressions he was repenting of was putting busyness and the worries of life ahead of God. God. David repents, deliver me from those transgressions. He asked for forgiveness for losing sight of really what's important. What really matters in life is our relationship with God. And David had lost that for a season. And he repents of that fact here. David sees that he's done that. He's let the busyness of being King David crowd out the most important thing, which is his relationship with God. Now, <clears throat> David sees, like in verse 12, he says, for I'm just a sojourner. He sees he's just passing through this world. And the most important thing that he needs to be focusing on in his life with, in his relationship with God. If man's achievements come to nothing, our hope can't be placed in our achievements. They have to be placed in something that is lasting. David concludes here in verses 9 through 11. I am youth. I do not open my mouth. For it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is like a breath. David's recentering his focus. He's asked for forgiveness for losing sight of this. And he asked God to forgive him, and he's recognizing that God has put him on this earth for a very brief period of time, and he cannot focus on the things of the world. He must 
focused on his relationship with God and build up things that last eternally. We may try to put this out of our minds that we're just that our lives are just handbreadths, inches, that life is short, that our end will come, just like it came for King David. So our prayer should be, make me know to know my end. Make me to know that life is short. We're just a vapor. The security and joy ultimately is only found in, in God. David concludes, seeking joy and fulfillment in God. David has a prayer in verses 12 and 13. And he says, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and no more. David here is restored to the understanding. Like I said just a second ago, he's a sojourner, a visitor, passing through this world. He's just an alien. And that's how he describes himself in verse 12. This is how Peter encourages us to live in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Peter, speaking to us, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. This is how we're to live our lives. As strangers in this world, if we believe what the Bible says, this world is coming to an end. For some of us, it might be today, tomorrow, next week, ten years from now. We don't know, but eventually it will come to an end. And if we believe the Bible, there is life after this life. And for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we are to set our hope and life on Jesus Christ that he is coming again and live like we are just passing through. This is how John describes the world. He says that it's presently passing our away. And we ourselves in the midst of it are passing away. Life is transient. Our security and meaning of life cannot be found in a world that is passing away. There is no security in a world like that. Our security is in our relationship with Jesus Christ and in the world to come, which he promises to all of those who have put faith in his son. His son. This is how Jesus tells us to live in Matthew chapter 6. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroy, or where thieves do not break in and steal. This is real wisdom. Our days may be as hambrous. Everything that's precious to us might dissolve and pass away. But there is something that lasts. What we do for Jesus and his people while we are on this earth, that lasts. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 6. Look at life as an opportunity to love my people. Serve me in this brief moments that you have. Store up for yourselves treasures where it matters. And I'm going to confess, you know, one of the things that they said on Monday was give, give some practical steps of how we do that. It's all great. Most of you probably agree with a lot of what I said. All of us can agree that whether we're Christians or not can agree that life is short. So how do we practically live like we're sojourners Visitors passing through. I don't have the answer to that. That's what I've been struggling with daily for probably four years. Is if this life is fleeting, how do I live according? I believe it. I believe everything that's in this book. 
But so how often I don't live like it. I think the practical steps here is to take each day and thank God for giving it to us. Step two is to look at life as not a series of schedules and events to keep. Those are important, and it's important to work hard and earn money and to provide for our family. But when God puts people in your life that you can minister to and love, you should do that. Maybe it's pulling over on the side of the road to change a tire, even though it's going to make you late. Maybe it's staying an extra 30 minutes to have a cup of coffee with a friend who really needs something. Maybe it's helping somebody out at their farm, cutting a tree down. Maybe it's inviting that neighbor over to dinner that has lived next to you for three years but you haven't talked to. I think these are the practical steps. That while jobs and earning money is important and we are to work hard and earn a living and use our resources wisely, we can't miss opportunities to share God's love with people that are all around us. Amen. And I'm telling you, church, I'm chief sinner number one when it comes to missing opportunities to do that. But that is storing up treasures in heaven. If Jesus is coming back, that is what's important. For those of you who are in this room who may not be believers in Jesus Christ, I urge you to ask yourself that question. Life is short. Where is my hope? I don't have all the answers, but I'd love to talk to you. And I know Pastor Jason would too. I, I, I don't have all the answers, but I know one thing. Jesus Christ is coming back. And he loves you. And he wants a relationship with you. And he wants to share eternity with you. For those of you who may not have that relationship, today's the day. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. For those of us who are like me, who aren't living with kingdom eyes, today is the day that we start doing it. Because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're just not. If you're like David, wrestling, like me, wrestling with this vanity, this transient nature of life, wrestling with the struggles, that's okay. That's good. Pray. Talk to some people. Seek wisdom from the Lord. I'm with you. I don't have the answers. The only answer I know is Jesus Christ died for me, and he's coming back. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for allowing a sinner like me to stand up here and share a few words. Father, I pray that you would draw every one of your children to you this morning. Anybody that needs your son Jesus, draw your sheep, Father. If the Bible says the sheep hear your voice, draw them to yourself. Father, move in this place, in this town in southwest Iowa, Seek and save the lost as only you can do. To transform the saints, starting with me. May we live with kingdom eyes and put our hope in the only thing that lasts, which is Jesus. It's in your son's name we pray.